Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you holding up? Oh, I'm holding up. That's about as good as you can do when there's nine days, three hours, 39 minutes and zero seconds left. We're getting there. Less than 10 days. That's it makes me a little nervous. Oh, I'm not nervous at all. I, I feel I feel great. Awesome. No anxieties <laughs> whatsoever. No anxieties at all. Everyone is sleeping great. So on today's podcast, we are going to talk a little bit about the last presidential debate that was held on Thursday between President Trump and Joe Biden. You heard what I thought was a much more easily consumed debate, a much easier thing to watch. Um, I still think it painted some of the same contrasts and, and largely keeps the race in the place that it was, but at least you could like hear them instead of just hearing a bunch of babbling back and forth over each other last time. And then for our second topic, we are going to spend the rest of the show breaking down the playing field for the State House of Representatives. Democrats need to net 16 seats to take control of the State House. Um, and there are a lot of battleground races. And I think that the partially because of how many state representatives there are, there are a lot of examples of Georgia's changing politics, particularly in the suburbs that have politically meaningful impacts um, in the state house. So we're going to talk about the map and, and democratic chances to flip that chamber. But Luke, let's start with the debate. And I think you know, broadly the takeaway from everybody was that this was a much easier debate to watch. The mute button seemed to help, even if it uh, only served as a message to the president and and he got enough nudging from his own team to not turn the thing into a incomprehensible shouting match. Um, what did you think of Thursday's debate? I, I agree with all of those things, so I won't uh, get into repeating what you just said. But the, the thing I really appreciate about this debate and the first debate is, and we talked about this offline a little bit, is both of these debates were actually very informative of who Donald Trump is and who Joe Biden is. Like, I mean, and Joe Biden even made that argument. Like, and there's the the one part in the debate where he's like, you know who I am, you know who he is, uh, and character is on the ballot. And I, I agree with that, and I appreciate that debate for really highlighting that kind of thing because uh, despite Trump style dominating the first debate, like, I feel like Trump came through actually significantly better in this debate like if you were someone who was trump curious and considering voting for the president again or for the first time like he gave you a lot more to work with this time uh whereas last time he didn't give you much to work with at all and i think um he did much much better for himself and i but i also think joe biden did better for himself than he did in the first debate i think you know not having a belligerent crazy man interrupt you every five seconds helps a lot uh in that but i think like biden rose to the occasion in ways that I was surprised to see from him. Uh, one thing I was incredibly impressed with him uh, throughout was like, he seemed the best prepared I've ever seen him for a debate. And I, I know we all have the 2020 primary in our mind, but at least for me, I always felt like in 2008 and 2012, like Biden did really well in the VP debates. And like, he had some tricky tasks because like Sarah Palin was a, a unique and interesting person to debate against and Paul Ryan like very smart dude very well prepared uh you know he he's crafty so I, I feel like the fact that uh we we forget that Biden is capable of really good performances I thought this was a really good one on his part because he was so prepared and very genuinely passionate at parts and I I was 
uh, happy to see that. I, that was my takeaway about Biden, too. And it made me wonder if, you know, Biden has an electorate made up of a lot of people who really want to vote against the president and recognize Biden's imperfections and maybe aren't in love with him as a candidate, but are willing to vote for him because of his character, I think, but also because he represents such a sharp departure from the hellhole we've been in in the last four years. Do you think that that debate performance from Biden on Thursday night amps up some of the enthusiasm to vote for him? I mean, on some specific issues, the one that comes to the one that comes to mind for me is climate change and, and voters who vote on that issue. Um, Biden really stepped out and I think was firm in his positions in a way that that he hasn't always been. Do you think that the enthusiasm for Biden could be increased by his performance the other night? I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm a hack. <laughs> like that is why I'm on this show uh, because of the work I do in politics and I am, you know, in the trenches and that being said, I mean, even my enthusiasm for Biden has increased as the race has go- gone on. And so I, I, I'm sure that's true for some other people. I don't think he'll ever get the same kind of enthusiasm that uh, you know Barack Obama did or even other previous candidates of either party. But that being said, I, I think the thing that I have felt better about with Biden, so I'll talk about myself and maybe this will mirror some other people's uh, feelings is I was in the camp of like, this dude's just not the right guy for right now. Right. Like maybe two, you know, maybe when he was younger, maybe, you know, at a different moment politically, he would have been better. And I will actually say I've done a full 180 on that. Whereas someone like Biden is perfect for right now. Um, you know, wishful friend of the show, David Axelrod, has a great line that he talks about a lot, and a lot of people attribute uh, to him uh, in, when they say this line. But in presidential elections, people very rarely are looking looking for a replica, and they're actually looking for a remedy. And I think this election, that might be the most true that it's ever been, because one thing Donald Trump has delivered on, one promise he's unquestionably delivered on, is that he was not going to be a typical politician. And we've seen that for better or for worse. And I think in a lot of ways, Joe Biden is all the great things and all the terrible things about typical politicians. Like if you looked up a dictionary definition of a politician, you very well might find a like a picture of Joe Biden as an example. And I think in this situation, that's a good thing um, because he is just so normal <laughs> and so regular that uh, I, I think that is refreshing in a lot of ways and it's it's so funny to see trump try to attack him on these things because that was i would argue one of his most principal successful attacks on hillary clinton that she's just a typical politician and he just like destroyed her demolished her uh with those arguments and this time he's using those arguments against joe biden and trying to and they're just not working at all and i i'm just fascinated by that dynamic uh in this race yeah, I think, Luke, this clip, I think, is the example of your point. And I am struck by how flat Trump's criticism of Biden falls in his response to this uh, remark from Biden. There's a reason why he's bringing up all this malarkey. There's a reason for it. He doesn't want to talk about the, the, the substantive issues. It's not about his family and my family. It's about your family. 
and your family's hurting badly, if you're making less than, if you're a middle-class family, you're getting hurt badly right now. You're sitting at the kitchen table this morning deciding, well, we can't get new tires, they're bald because we have to wait another month or so. Or are we going to be able to pay the mortgage? Or who's going to tell her she can't go back to, to community college? They're the decisions you're making in the middle-class families like I grew up in Scranton and Claymont. They're in trouble. We should be talking about your families, but that's the last thing he wants to talk about. I want, to, I want to talk about North Korea. Me, I do want to second, turn to please. 10 seconds, Mr. President. That's 10 a typical seconds. political statement. Let's get off this China thing. And then he looks, the family, around the table, everything. Just right. a typical politician when I see that. Let's talk I'm about North Korea. I'm not a typical Korea, politician. Okay, That's President. why I got elected. That let's was, talk let's about get off the subject of China. Let's talk around sitting around the table. All right. Come on, Joe, you can do better. We're going to talk about the things that Joe Biden was laying out there, the, the challenges that families are facing, this image of a family sitting around the table trying to figure out how they are going to be okay amidst a pandemic, against, amidst a recession, amidst all of the other challenges that families are facing, that to me feels more real now, given the state of the world that we're in, and something that more people would relate to and not see as some sort of like cheap politician act. And, I, you know... Trump butted in, you know, the moderator was trying to move on and Trump butted in to levy that attack against Biden in a way that I actually thought was really harmful to him for just mocking the kinds of people who, you know, might have been skeptical of Hillary Clinton as like a typical politician, but now find themselves in such dire straits. And Biden is the one speaking to the challenges they're they're facing. And and Trump is just mocking him. Yeah, I think. It's just a reflection of how much things can change in four years because, you know, coming out of the Obama administration, like things were going pretty well. Like not every not everyone had the best job that they wanted. Lots of people didn't have the right health care. Lots of people didn't, you know, were working two or three jobs. But generally speaking, things felt like they were going in a good trajectory. And I, I think it's a lot easier to reject the phony baloney feeling high-minded spirited kitchen table politics talk that uh is going on when things are going well because those conversations just feel a whole lot less important you know when you're not when hundreds of thousands of people haven't died because of a pandemic you can prioritize some other issues uh like which parties in control of Congress and which, you know, so, you know, who's winning the, the social wars, really. I, I, I think there is a giant element of that. Whereas right now, the priority on people's minds is getting the economy working, getting this pandemic uh, taken care of. And when you have one politician who's saying, I have a great plan, it's a great plan. It's actually, it's ongoing right now. Everything's great. The virus is handled. And you should be thanking me for it, you sons of bitches. And you have another politician who's reflecting the actual reality of, uh, no, things are not going well, and I know how scared everyone is, and I'd like to fix things, and here's my plan for fixing things. And, you know, like, I feel like that's just a better pitch this year. The other thing I think maybe we're beginning to get a preview of is the possibility that Biden governs with a more expansive agenda than you would have thought he would have at the beginning of the Democratic primary. Um, news came out over the weekend that Biden is going to visit Georgia on Tuesday. Um, I, that must be a signal from his campaign that he sees Georgia as competitive and he has a chance to flip it. And it, I think it also probably signals that um, 
he feels really good about 270 electoral votes in other states. Kamala but he, was also as a part here on of Friday, that, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was here on Friday. But what has been reported about his visit is that he'll make a visit in Metro Atlanta and then he'll go down to Warm Springs and, and deliver a speech from the Little White House, um, a, a little spot in Georgia that is really associated with FDR. And I'm really curious about what he's going to say in that speech about if it's sort of a closing argument about a need for some kind of expansive government action a la FDR's New Deal. Um, We've also seen him previously be willing to take the advice of the further left part of the party and adopt more expansive plans on, on climate change and on economic issues. He defended a public option in the ACA without really thinking about it at the debate the other night. And he said that we were going to transition away uh, from fossil fuels and in the oil industry entirely, um, which, you know, the president thought that he had Biden in a gaffe immediately and tried to press him on it. Um, and Biden didn't back down. He seems to be willing to take bolder stands than you might've thought. So, you know, I think that that for the for the type of voters that were skeptical about Biden because he may not have been progressive enough or bold enough, you're starting to see some signs from the way that he's campaigning, the way that he's talking in the debate and in his focus on the trail that maybe he's got a bigger vision than than we planned for. I I surely hope you are right, Kyle. I mean, to some extent, this is not surprising or shocking. You know, who who wins a presidential race uh, under any circumstances and, you know, says like, and now it's time to enact my very small, inconsequential agenda that will do almost nothing for anyone. (laughs) You know, like, no, no one does that. Everyone wants to be a consequential president uh, once you get there. And so I'm hopeful that Biden is going to take those steps. Um, I, I don't want to derail our conversation. I just want to highlight the the weeds had an actually excellent uh, recap of this debate. And they did a uh, great job, I think, of analyzing something in this race that I found very interesting is that Biden kind of undersells a lot of his proposals. Like he will make a proposal that is actually a lot bigger than he makes it sound sometimes. Uh, and uh, I've always just found that uh, interesting dynamic in this race in, in the sense that Biden basically is unwilling to overpromise a lot. And I think that's actually a good and responsible thing that I'm happy that he's doing to some extent. I think he could do a little better messaging just how important this stuff is. But as far as uh, not overselling, I think that is actually a, a good instinct, especially in the tough time we find ourselves in. Uh, in what is a strange thing for Peach Pog, I am transitioning right now to the second topic without uh, uh, you knowing, Kyle. I, for a long time on this show, a lot of other people have said that there's a chance we could flip the state house. And I, I phrase it that way with that inflection because it's mathematically possible. This year, we actually have enough candidates running. And there's also enough seats that are competitive enough that in the right cycle with the right candidates, with the right environment, they could be flipped to the Democratic Party. And the thing I've been asking myself a lot lately, because I do have like the Georgia is going to be blue this year syndrome that every Georgia Democrat has. And it's always one cycle away from flipping is what it feels like. And and and, and, th- and this time we have a lot of 
different things than we've ever had before. And I'm just wondering if it is different enough than that all the, you know, as the prophecy foretold, Georgia will now be blue. And the the big one here is is how Joe Biden's campaign has been treating Georgia. And the thing that I want, I'm like trying to figure out and probably won't have an answer until, you know, like uh, November 10th or something. But is like, is Joe Biden here because he thinks he can flip Georgia or is Joe Biden here because Georgia is flipping and he wants to make sure he's pushing it over the edge. And I I really don't know. I think it's the honest answer is it's always a combination of both and that the success we've been having on the ground is both influenced by and dependent on the national activity and national environment that's been created for us. Uh, the, The thing I can say is, I, I've been working on the ground in state house politics for a really long time, and it's never been like this before. I think the volunteer engagement is actually at a similar level to what it was in 16 and 18, which is incredible if you think about the fact that we are in a pandemic right now. And I can say that like the level of engagement is similar. It's just they're doing different things. And the, the big change that I've seen is that I think Democratic groups, both the party, outside affiliated groups, really, really outside affiliated groups, are just so much more keyed into the importance of this and the potential here. And then last thing on that is like the candidates are so much better this year. Even candidates that have run before are better this year. And I think that has uh, really, really helped and make a big difference as to why this is a conversation worth having that's not just you know democrat pipe dreams because even if we don't win i think there's going to be some significant changes uh to to the state house's political dynamics luke this is the first cycle since the republican takeover in the early 2000s where there's a real chance that a chamber could change hands you know democrats made a lot of inroads into the Republican majority in 2018, but the gap was so large that the, it never felt like the majority for Republicans was at stake. Whereas this year it does feel like that majority is at stake. What are some of the trends in messaging that you're seeing from Republican candidates as they try to argue against these democratic challengers that, that may be able to flip the chamber? Well, this, this year, I think, they have really gotten wrapped up in the national conversation in a way that I haven't seen the Republicans do before. And I, you know, I, I want to just throw out a disclaimer. I am currently running a can- helping run a campaign against a incumbent state house rep. So obviously I am a little biased in my interpretations of these arguments. And so I'm going to try really, really hard. I want to just like plant my flag. I'm trying really hard to be neutral in my analysis of this, but I probably am about to fail in which Kyle will heroically come in and clean up the mess I'm about to make. Um, but the the thing I found have found really interesting at a high level is that the Republicans in Georgia pretty much always can't like to campaign on two things. They want to campaign on, boy, oh boy, Georgia's the best state to do business in. We are great on the economy. Isn't everybody, and I do mean everybody in Georgia, doing amazingly economically well, 
boy, oh boy, George is great. Obviously, that's not true, but that is how they always campaign. So that's plank one. And then plank two is, here is this giant slab of red meat, conservative base, consume and enjoy. And like, those are the two things they love to campaign on. And so, you know, in 2014 and 2016, we had these religious liberty bills, all that kind of stuff. And so they had one for themselves uh, in 2019, which was the hate crimes bill, which was a lot of Republicans way of saying, look, you see, I'm still super conservative. I'm so conservative. I'll vote against a hate crimes bill. And, you know, for some of the flippable races like Houston Gaines and Marcus Wiegauer, who I'm working against in Athens, those two decided for their politics, being against a hate crimes bill would be great for their politics because the red meat conservative base would love it. And then they have those economic things they can talk about, which, uh, you know, everyone uh, can can like. And some other candidates made different decisions. Some of the uh, Republicans campaigning in the metro Atlanta area voted for the hate crimes bill. And to be fair, some of them, and even some of them in those really competitive seats, were genuine about that. And like they were firm supporters of hate crimes legislation from the day they started campaigning and in there, I, I want to give them credit for that, that that is true for some of the, those folks. Um, and then an interesting thing happened, which was uh, racial relations and racial tension uh, became the conversation nationally. And they realized they put themselves in a terrible situation because a bunch of them looked really fucking racist. Pardon my French, because they are. Uh, and their campaigns are racist and have been racist and continue to be racist. But they realized that if they had a hate crimes bill that they voted against, that would be a really easy thing to campaign against them on. And so they slapped some cosmetic changes on it uh, and voted for it. The other thing they did, though, is uh, try very intelligently, I think, in a crafty Machiavellian skullduggery way of creating this wedge between the folks who are trying to legitimately work on racial tension issues and lower the temperature there and the people who just want to say there is nothing wrong in America, white supremacy does not exist, white privilege does not exist, and these problems are fake and people are just riggers trying to destroy everything good in America and hate apple, apple pie, I assume. Uh, and so uh, they did that through voting for a hate crimes bill and then voting for a bill that really only can be referred to as a police protection act, that the sole purpose is to make it harder for police to be held accountable for anything they do. And the same people who flipped on the hate crimes bill vote flipped to voting for uh, that bill. And that has created the messaging framework that we find ourselves in. I'm sorry I'm having to take so much time on this, but it's a lot of history recap, so to make sense of the messaging, the pieces of messaging we're going to go over uh, with with y'all now. Yeah, Luke, the thing that I feel like I've noticed in the last, you know, we've been watching Georgia politics now really closely in the in the 2016 and 2018 cycles. When we've been doing this podcast, I watched it in, in 2014 and 2012 pretty closely too. It feels like the argument from Republicans against Democrats in a broad sense has gotten much darker, has focused much more on these issues of painting their opponents as these radicals who threaten the safety of your community. I felt like going back to maybe 2012, 2014, mostly I think as an artifact of the fact that a majority in the state house or the state Senate was not on the line you had a much softer argument from Republicans that was like conservative governance is working. Low taxes is working. 
what we're doing on education and healthcare, all that stuff, the conservative approach is working. And it felt like the, the culture war issues were more fought out in Republican primaries. Now it feels like it's shifted to where the messaging on these issues about racial relations and crime and the suburbs and all of that is a lot sharper and a lot darker than in recent years. I don't know if that if that's just my own bias no, talking or if that's a shift no, you've noticed. No, no, no. I, I totally agree. That's exactly where I, I wanted to take this conversation because that prefacing idea I feel is so important to that conversation. Because what I think a lot of Republicans have found, and really just my experience of working on these state house races is that that first plank I talked about, and that's why I started there with the economics message of Republicans in Georgia was kind of unbeatable. Like, I mean, just frankly, like basically the electorate in Georgia wanted things to stay, or at least a majority of the electorate, right? Cause there's plenty of times, the plenty of people have voted against Republicans in Georgia, right? It's not one unanimous vote or anything. So the economic policy had been just, working unquestionably and every candidate who ran on that one in a competitive seat was able to win uh on those uh messaging planks and many of our governor's races were fought over those things and what i think has happened is that the situation uh both nationally and in georgia has just changed very very rapidly and a lot of these campaigns, I mean, maybe they're not admitting it to themselves, but I imagine just like deep down, they are terrified that this is that that the Democrats' message this year is going to be successful. That basically, you know, nobody wants to look racist, right? That is what is driving so much of the campaign messaging we're seeing, because what the Republic they're trying to eat their cake and have it too, right? Like what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, look, we could not possibly be racist. We all voted for this hate crimes bill. Sure, some of us voted against it previously, but we voted for it this time. So obviously we're not racist because that is what these protesters had wanted. Like that's the tone they're taking is like, we can't be racist because we did this thing. And then they're going to, they pull out a bullhorn instead of a dog whistle and shout a bunch of uh, racist messaging uh, about the rioters because they basically, they basically are campaigning. I've seen many ads like this. And again, we're uh, audio medium, so I can't show them to you. But like, I'll be scrolling through my Facebook. And I'm sure I'm sure if you're in Georgia, you've probably seen these ads too. You know, it'll be insert reps name here voted for hate crimes bill. They are, you know, and the, and the tone that they take when they talk about this publicly is like, we are like John Lewis, we are civil rights champions. And we did the thing. We did it. We solved racial relations in Georgia because there's a hate crimes bill now. And that is that is what they want to have happen is that they create this reality where this was the only racial tension fight left in Georgia. So let's all call it a day because we did it. Um, and that is just not the truth. And the reason why they want to say that is because of the fact that one, it's not true. <laughs> and and two, it's a very effective weapon for the protesters and what they're trying to do is create this reality for the georgia electorate that because they have solved racial relations anybody who is left protesting the stake of racial relations in georgia is a rioter and wants to defund the police and dismantle everything and destroy the suburbs and burn it all down and i know that sounds ridiculous and that is why in our show notes we are going to share with you some of the insane mailers that have gone out in georgia that basically say 
Like, not only does my opponent want to defund the police, my opponent is a rioter. <laughs> because there are a couple of them that basically say that. Luke, that message has come in a couple of different forms. Um, Jan Jones, who is one of the leading Republicans in the state in the state house, she is uh, has a challenge this cycle. Tell us a little bit about the mail or her campaign set. Yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, most of the Republican campaigns have adopted a bullhorn rather than a dog whistle for their racial messaging. But that that is not to say that um, some of them have not remained more subtle. Uh, Jan Jones, as Kyle just mentioned. Uh, very prominent Republican has been unchallenged or barely challenged most of her career. She she had a mailer uh, sent out that says, and I quote, you moved to North Fulton for a reason. It doesn't say what that reason is, but I think we all know what it is, uh, which, you know, for people who are not uh, <laughs> residents of Fulton or North Fulton or don't know Georgia, Georgia's geography as well as we do on this show, uh, North Fulton is is basically the white flight city suburb uh, created in Fulton to escape the perils of Democrat governance uh, that uh, were uh, in, in the county as a whole. To me, this entire trend strikes me as backwards. The suburbs in Georgia are not on fire. There are not rioters going through like Woodstock and Ackworth and Lawrenceville. Like, that's just not the reality that people are living in. And I think a, I, I remember an AJC story from earlier this year where younger people who were home from college and who were activated by seeing demonstrations around the country were leading demonstrations in other small towns around the state, the places that you wouldn't expect to see demonstrations against police brutality, like maybe over in Madison or or other little towns across the state, and that they were finding that people were broadly receptive to demands for justice in in light of what happened to George Floyd and, and to others. So like Republican messaging doesn't reflect this reality that the suburbs are, are oh, not no, on no, fire. No, no. But it, at it, the same time, people, I would think, even amidst everything going on, would be like, yeah, it'd be great if my property taxes could remain a little lower. It'd be great if I didn't feel like my taxes were going to go up and and in that this would continue to be a good place to do business. We're in a more competitive political environment now, and Republicans seem to have offered the, seem to be arguing on the ground that is less popular among the voters that they need to win to maintain control. So I, I actually see this as more nuanced, and, and maybe I haven't done a great job of articulating this. They are trying to create this artificial reality where they are the champions of civil rights and the rioters are just rioters, right? Like that is why they have worked so hard that after they basically said every bill on the shelf except the budget and the hate crimes bill is staying on the shelf because of the pandemic when they came back. Like it was, there are very few bills they passed and that, that was, the budget was one and this was one. Like the reason why they they wanted to have this this cudgel this you know crutch to lay, lean on of no we couldn't possibly be racist look at the hate crimes bill and so what they're trying to do is they're turning up the temperature and turning up the absurdity of their attacks to eleven so that it looks like that the only thing that the protesters could possibly want is violence socialism communism insanity madness defund the police and so to them 
this is, I mean, maybe some of them truly, like, believe the streets are on fire in the suburbs, and I don't know why they would think that, but maybe they do, but I, I think they know for a fact that that is not what the current state is. What they are arguing is that their Democratic opponents want to do that. And the only reason they're arguing that is because of the, the fact that they are so incredibly vulnerable on this issue and on the issue of failing consistently to bring the country and the state together, that this is the only way they can actually win. Because I've seen a lot of polling around the state, um, and it's a very consistent thing that the Republicans are not looking very good on the you know generic questions. I've seen it phrased a million different ways of just like, are you going to bring the country together or not? And the reason why is because they suck on that, and we all know they do, and they know they do. And so they only have one card to play, which is, sure, I can't bring the country together, but those guys are commie radical you know bomb throwers so of course they can't bring the country together because you don't like any of those things because they are terrified of having a real debate on the real issues they don't want to talk about health care policy they have no health care policy the health care policy they would like to be is i have money you don't i can pay for health care you can't tough like that is their ideal policy but they can't they can't argue that because people don't want that and people want the coronavirus handled but Governor Kemp decided that that's not what governments do. He decided that the free market should handle it, but they don't want to argue that because that is incredibly unpopular. And they also don't like public education. That's why they cut a billion dollars from it instead of uh, you know, just simply dealing with all of the extravagant tax cuts they have for their corporate allies. And oh my God, I'm running for state house right now. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. Let me, I just, I just let me swung really, into campaign well, mode. Let me reel you in a little bit because... Because I'm curious, like, is this play a good play? I mean, it's their I, only see, the, play. It's their only one. They have one play in the playbook, and this is all they've got left because they've, they've cut themselves from everything else. But see, I would think that in the suburbs, I mean, the reason that we keep talking about the suburbs is that the majority of the seats that Democrats need to flip and are flippable are occurring in these are located in these rapidly fair too, but yes. Yeah. And need to hold on to are in these rapidly changing suburbs of Atlanta. I mean, even the two Athens seats are kind of the suburbs of Athens. If, if I I thoroughly agree that they, they are the suburbs version of Athens for sure. Yeah. Um, I would have thought that for a lot of these voters, a mess, like one way in which you could sort of like, try to pull this conversation out of COVID and try to pull this conversation out of Trump and be like, we've had two decades of solid conservative governance from Republicans in Georgia. And that led us to be the number one state to do business. We have excellent schools that before the pandemic were fully funded. Um, Do you want to give up that and turn this state over to irresponsible democratic leadership or whatever they would say? I don't, to me, that, that, that argument is so weak sauce, man. But you know, that my, it my, is it weak was so sauce. Funny. every word of it, the only response I had to it, but yeah, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, just seriously. And, and, and because the problem is they can't ignore the national environment, right? They can't put Georgia in a bubble. Like as much as they want to, they can't do that. And the only thing they can do is, because I mean, the, the reason why they're doing so bad, and I, I would say if we were in Earth 2 where President Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or even Hillary Clinton had like 
gotten their butt kicked by the virus early on, like almost everybody did, but like actually turned it around and tried really hard to get it together. Like we would not have this conversation, right? The and you know the problem is that they just don't have a plan. They have no plan. And there's this other party out there who is equally viable that says, we have a plan and we will do it and we will bring life back to normal if you just elect us when the other people's plan is, look how awesome we are and how insane these other people are. Uh, that that just doesn't work. And, and so like this is reflected to me in the completely almost weaker than your argument kyle because like there is merit to that i just think the like what have you done for me lately is so much stronger um but like this is the okay so i've listened to many of these forums i've participated in some of them in debate prep the positive conversation the republicans are trying to have right now in a global pandemic where over seven thousand georgians have died they have no plan on how to deal with that they have no plan on how to deal with all the georgians who don't have health care who don't have a job right now who are afraid their business are going to shut down their their message to you is yeah their thing that they're like you should re-elect our majority on you you should re-elect this republican majority because we have done such a great job on reforming the foster care system and fighting sex trafficking. Which, don't get me wrong, those are great things. I'm happy we're doing them. But in this political context, that is so, just so insanely, inconceivably not adequate to what is going on around everyone. Where, you know, you can't, see your family without worrying we're all going to die because one of us is asymptomatic and we're going to get everyone else sick that just doesn't meet the moment one i think notable exception to the full embrace of a sort of a dark negative message somebody who i think is trying to put themselves in the political center and and look active on the issue of uh, the coronavirus is representative Chuck Evstration. He's a Republican from Dekula. He is being challenged by Nikita Hemingway for that state house seat. Um, he, I thought pretty notably used a prominent media opportunity when he was on political rewind earlier in the summer to lay out a four point plan for addressing the coronavirus, which included improvements on testing so that you could get same day testing results getting more funding for schools to help set up learning centers that would help students navigate the pandemic by giving them more opportunities for in-person learning and in smaller, safer environments and creating a state certification for businesses so that businesses could demonstrate that they complied with sanitary guidelines and are setting up a workplace that is safe amidst the pandemic. Um, it was, I think, an implicit criticism of Governor Kemp's leadership on the coronavirus and, and definitely one and definitely a criticism of, of Donald Trump's approach. But it was like a, a positive reelect me and I will do something good in government to fight the coronavirus message as opposed to the everything is fine. We're turning the corner. We're going to do better. It was like a recognition that things weren't where they needed to be, which to me was much closer to people's own views about the coronavirus. Um, and, and comes from the same lawmaker who championed the hate crimes bill, the same lawmaker who says he's going to introduce legislation to undo Georgia citizens arrest law. Check abstration, I think, 
is somewhat unique among Republicans and very actively jumping to the political center to try to hold on to his seat. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, be fair, he has pushed, been one of the few people pushing hate crimes for a while, so he's not one of the flippers on that issue. But yeah, I, I mean, every I don't know him or that race very well. I would agree with you that it is uh, jumping to the center. Maybe that is where he genuinely is. And I mean, honestly, I hope he would, he would be because uh, as much as I want more Democrats to be elected, I also would love it if the Republican Party wasn't so fatalistic uh, in its approach to so many issues, but especially the one of the pandemic. So I, I'm not going to, you know, use my time <laughs> to to crap on someone for actually presenting some good ideas. Because while I don't think that's enough, like I, I do appreciate anyone who's like, we should do more. <laughs> so I, I will take I will take that uh, as a win. And at this point, I think the best we have to hope for is just the that this campaign does help democrats pick up a lot of seats and that the republicans realize just sticking their hands heads in the sand and pretending one of the worst crises of you know our lifetimes potentially the worst one uh you know just that's not a good strategy of just doing nothing and hoping it goes away isn't a great strategy to me it's notable that there weren't more of those i mean you could imagine a group of 12 or so republicans who represent these flippable districts going to speaker ralston and saying we need to put together a legislative package that is probably made up of the ideas that Chuck Abstration put on the table and show us as being active on the coronavirus. Um, I, I think because that is, the message from the governor. Well, I was going to say, I think it's just a like a pipe dream for two reasons. One, the structural reason that just as a state rep, you just don't have staff, you don't have resources. And it's hard to to put these things together and to think of this way. And then the other thing is, is that the, especially since Trump became president, the Republican party has become a ideological lockstep top down organization where whatever the, the leaguer says goes. And, you know, when you're having the cross pressure of both Donald Trump and Brian Kemp, saying the virus, to, you know, if, obviously they're not saying the virus doesn't exist, but like they basically are. And I, I think this is really summed up best by the current White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who just says, we can't control the virus. Like that is his messaging in the last week of this campaign. And, and that's what you're voting for. If you're voting for Republicans, you're voting for a party that says, this is really bad. We have no power over it. Accept it. More relevant, though, I think is Kemp's message, which has been the state's done what it can do. And the what is going to happen, the fate of the virus in Georgia is largely on people's individual decisions. And so he has, you know, called for people to act responsibly, but he hasn't used the power of government to try to secure that from happening. And that to me was the avenue of like, if you had an organized group willing to push back and say, no, the state can actually do more, but it does, it butts up against that sort of top down deferential approach to the most visible leaders of your party. Yeah, and just fr frankly, this version of the Republican Party is just not willing to to do that, to get out of the step with the party line, because, you know, RBMK reactors cannot explode, and that is the party line. The coronavirus cannot be contained, and all you can do is rely on your personal action, and that is what the party line is, and so that is what the party line shall be. Um, so they, I, I'm not shocked that no one else jumped on this bandwagon, because, and I mean, I think this is the saddest part of it is 
the institution of the Republican Party as constructed right now, there is significantly more downside for rejecting the party line than for accepting it. Because if you want to get money from the leadership committees, if you want to get the right committee assignments, if you want to get money from your fellow reps, crapping on their approach is not a great way to do it. And, you know, luckily for Democrats, they have started to refuse to be strategic, where in previous years they would say, oh, yeah, you need, if you need to say this for your election, go ahead. You need to make that vote for your election, go ahead. They don't do that anymore. They expect 100% adherence to the party line. And I think they're going to suffer uh, in this election just as much as uh, we have suffered as American people by that. One thing that Republicans are really excited about is the opportunity to knock off a Democratic minority leader, Bob Trammell. He is in one of the reddest state house districts of any Democrat in the state. I believe he is the only Democrat to represent a district in the state house that Trump carried in 2016. Somebody can fact check me on that. I think that's correct. Um, He's definitely one of the few, if not the only. Outside groups have spent over a million dollars trying to unseat him. Um, You've got national groups funding ads against him, and you have a lot of uh, Republican operatives on Twitter talking shit about how excited they are to flip this seat. Luke, I think for, for Democrats, you can sort of look at it two ways. He does represent a very red district in his loss if he if he isn't successful in his bid for reelection is something that could be potentially offset by flipping another Republican seat in more friendly Democratic territory. But at the same time, he is the minority leader in the state house. He is the leader of state house Democrats. He is somebody who I've been really impressed by in terms of the moral stance that he has taken and the in the leadership that he has had of the Democratic caucus in the state house. And so I think sort of mentally, emotionally, it could be a blow to Democrats if Trammell is unseated in this race. What do you think about all of this focus on on his seat? Well, Trammell is also a friend of mine, so I would be very sad if Leader Trammell uh, was to not be in the state house and not be the leader of the state house uh, caucus. Um, but I, I, think, I think there's a lot of reason why they are focusing on it. And it is because he is the leader, because it is a flippable seat for them. I mean, mathematically it is. I, I think Trammell has always had a good pulse for his district and always uh, done a admirable job of not putting his personal politics over what's best for the state because there's many times I could point to where he voted for something that would be hard for him to campaign on but was the right thing to do. Um, so I think... I think a lot of his district rep- recognizes that and recognizes the uh, you know benefit of having a party's leader, even if it's the minority party in in the district. And I, I think uh, Trammell is is doing a great job. And despite the I mean ridiculous disproportionate <laughs> amount of money being spent against him, because uh, I, I think at this point it's like well over a million dollars. Uh, he he, I think he ha- can win that race and win it by a margin that will embarrass them for putting a million dollars into it. And I I think that will be better for the party because Georgia is a very big, very diverse state. And I do mean that in almost every way in just the sense that, you know, just knowing how to be the party of Atlanta or just the party of the cities is like not going to be enough. And we definitely need to diversify uh, the party if we're going to win the whole state and be able to have representatives from every corner of the state, which I think we really do need to do. 
And I, I think uh, Trammell is someone who has been focused on that mission and uh, will help get us there. And so I, I really hope he does stay on, though I, I will say I expect him to. <laughs> the danger of making predictions, uh, but I, I do think he will. He does have a longtime connection to that district. His dad was mayor of Luthersville, a town in that district for 17 years. Um, his law practice, uh, this comes from from reporting in the AJC and Georgia Recorder, who have both taken close looks at this race. His law practice is actually in his what was formerly his grandparents' home. Um, so he he definitely I think that somewhat explains why he is competitive in a red leaning district in a way that sort of your run of the mill Democrat may not be. Um, so it's going to be an interesting one to watch on election night. Um, just a few other sort of individual races to call out here, and then we'll close with why all of this matters, why control of the state house matters in, in 2021. Um, a place where Democrats could get a moral victory, even if they fall short of claiming the majority in the chamber would be to unseat state representative Ed Setzler. He is the Republican who championed the heartbeat bill abortion ban that was passed in the state. Um, he, I think, Setzler, I think, is notable for somebody who has not tried to triangulate to the center, who has sort of fully embraced Republican red meat politics while his district is changing and becoming more competitive. Kyle Renato, who we talked to uh, quite a while ago on the podcast, he is challenging Setzler in that district. There's also a couple of longtime Republican committee chairs, State Representatives Sharon Cooper and Brett Harrell, who have uh, been committee chairs in the state house they're facing competitive challenges cooper's being challenged by louisa wakeman and rebecca mitchell is challenging brett harrell in those races um a couple other people that we've talked to we talked to mocha jasmine johnson who is running in 117 in athens um she's a obviously a candidate to keep an eye on as she challenges houston Gaines in that seat and to the extent that we have and, and continue to talk about voting rights issues on the podcast and in Georgia politics, Sarah Tyndall Gazal is a Democratic challenger in, in the suburbs, and she is somebody who was formerly the, the voter protection director for state Democrats, somebody who I think would probably play a central role in any effort by Democrats to improve access to vote in the state if they take the majority um, that's kind of the, the seats where Democrats are challenging Republicans and hoping to flip those seats. Democrats have to net 16 seats, which means they also need to hold on to seats like Bob Trammell's, and they also need to hold back challenges to people like Mary Robichaux, Josh McLaren, Eric Allen. Those are three Democrats who are defending seats, um, two of which are in rematches, Mary Robichaux in a rematch against Betty Price, Tom Price's wife, who is trying to reclaim her Republican seat in the state legislature. And, and Representative Josh McLaren has a rematch against Alex Kaufman in another race that was really close in, in 2018. Luke, any other individual races you want to note before we close on on why all of this is important? Uh, did, I, did you mention Jonathan Wallace? <laughs> the gang no, I was going to I was I was going to leave that one to you. Okay. Yes. Uh, he's also running in the Athens area. I, I mean, it is it is truly amazing to just hear you go through all those because just 
I can remember four years ago where we barely had any candidates running. And if we did, I hadn't really heard about them. I was like, oh, we have someone in that seat. I had no idea. Whereas this time I've heard of all these candidates at least once. And many of them are running very, very impressive campaigns. And I know we've, we've spent a lot of time in the state house as we should, since it is the chamber that has a realistic chance of flipping. But I do want to just uh, shout out, you know, a couple of the, uh, state Senate races, then you know the ones that I have followed closely. There, are, there are others that probably deserve mention, but just uh, my old friend Sarah Beesing, who's running for state Senate, and then Nikki Merritt, who also had been running. I've just noticed those two campaigns are particularly strong, and the state Senate is really gerrymandered. So it is impressive whenever any of those sh- seats flip in either direction, but of course, especially in the Democratic direction, just considering uh, the aggressiveness of the Republican gerrymander. So it is particularly lucky for Democrats that they are competitive for control of the state house in such an important election year. It is 2020, which means the legislature in 2021 will use the results of the census to redraw districts across the state, meaning that Democrats would have an opportunity to force more fair district maps that maybe would deal with some of the gerrymandering in the Senate. Um, but would also give Democrats a better chance to capitalize on their support and possibly maintaining a state house majority for more than one single cycle if they're able to get it done. Um, it also matters because having a split legislature means that Democrats and Republicans would have to agree on a state budget and they would have to agree on top agenda items and and there would likely be much more horse trading in the legislature. Um, Democratic concerns would sort of automatically get more serious consideration in the legislature, given that they now would have a procedural veto in the process by refusing to consider Republican bills um, from the state Senate if they were to control the state house. Um, And it also means that Governor Kemp would face a divided legislature where he would have to get his legislative priorities done um, for the rest of his term. Um, Any other important things for voters to consider as they consider races that may ultimately hand Democrats control of the state house or anything you want to say about the importance of redistricting or the budget or any other things? I I think the importance cannot be underestimated of just how big of a deal for Georgia it would be to have a seat at the table because right now the Republicans are able to do just about everything that they want They can't pass constitutional amendments without the Democratic Party anymore, but just about everything else they can. And the consequences of them being able to ignore half of the state's population's needs and desires and political thoughts has been pretty disastrous. And I I, I think, truthfully, had Democrats had a seat at the table during this pandemic in the state house or, or the state senate, where they controlled one of those chambers, we would not Kemp would not have been able to get away with the approach that he decided to take of doing nothing because the political pressure on him would have been far more substantial than it would have been without the Democrats being able to actually say, no, this budget will not pass without more action on the virus. Like you will not be able to just say it's up to people's personal responsibility because that's insane. And they would have been able to enforce that. Whereas uh, now we all just have to stand by with our hands up and 
saying, man, that Kemp guy's really embarrassing Georgia. And so, you know, that would be my pitch to, to any undecided voter who somehow finds themselves on this program, uh, which, hey, welcome. Uh, happy to have you. Uh, but if you are if you are here, like that, that is the thing I would say, is that like if you want it to be, if you think Brian Kemp's doing a great job and no one should ever hold him back, then vote for Republicans. If you think he needs to have a check uh, and that the Republican Party needs a check in Georgia, then this is the best way to provide it. Um, I could, there's plenty of other partisan things I could hit on and focus on, but I think that's the, the biggest thing uh, I would say. And I think that is a good place to close. So if you have not already, make your plan to vote. If that absentee ballot is sitting on your table and needs to be filled out, fill it out, take it to your Dropbox um, figure out what your hours for early voting are if you're planning on voting in person early. And if not, get out there on election day and, and make sure that your voice is heard. Luke, as always, thank you for joining the show and, and walking us through the stakes of these state house races. Happy to be here. Uh, apologize to all <laughs> all listeners for how hot I am right now, but there's only nine days left, so uh, it, it is the nature of the beast uh, for me to be very fired up in the, this portion of the campaign. We're going to let Luke sleep when this is all over. It'll be great. All righty. We'll talk to you again soon. Go vote. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.